everybody, and welcome back to What Would the Smart Party Do? Uh, we're catching up this week, so hopefully you've caught the last couple of episodes uh, because we're going to be talking about them a little bit more. And even if you haven't, it's still going to be cool. So stick with us. Uh, there's not just me. There's Gaz. Hello, Gaz. Hello, Baz. How's it going? It's going pretty fruitily, actually. I'm quite excited. I've been playing some games, and you've been in them, and so have other people, which is what we're going to talk about. And we swapped over <laughs> as well. You were in mine. It's yeah, been a loving. I know. Which crazy gaming times so um i thought we'd tell people about our gaming adventures instead of just the the theory of, of how games work and what dice we're supposed to use and what happens when people die and why i don't get fate and you don't get powered by the apocalypse perhaps we should just you know talk about games we've actually been playing for the last couple of weeks so yes do you want to set us up there mate what was the grand experiment Yes, let's talk about games we've played and not the ones back in 1993 or whenever it was because that's probably a bit too far. We're in danger of going back into Earth Dawn territory. So over the last couple of weeks, after doing our initial podcast on Into the Odd, which we reviewed and had a bit of a, a walkthrough, made a character, read through some of the text and had a bit of a, a gander at, we thought we should play it because let's face it, uh, there's too many people on the internet who'll read a book and say it's rubbish or read some rules and go, I don't see how this works. Uh, and what you really need to do is play the game to get anything out of it. So to find out if it works or how it works or if you like it, really the best way and only way is to get some friends together and have a bit of a game. So that's what we did. And we started off with you, didn't we, Baz? Uh, we just mm -hmm. put a bit of a call out to some of our patrons and other friends and hangers-on. And we got, what, half a dozen players for that one? Well, yeah, crazily, we had six players, which is bonkers. I can't remember last time I played a game with six players. So that's going to be one of the things to report on straight away but yeah you're right loads of people which was great really gratifying and, and thanks ever so much to those guys for for coming and, and giving it a go yeah and um i suppose the other thing is that although six players seems uh probably cool to most people and is, is an old-fashioned number what really a little bit difficult arguably or potentially was doing it over hangouts because there's a lot of pauses and waiting for someone else to speak and all that kind of stuff um, but because the system's quite lightweight, I think it worked quite well, even with a big bunch of people. What do you reckon? Uh, I actually found it fine, even with six people. We did have to wrangle it a little bit, and I think anything you do over Hangouts, it can get a bit wearing after more than about two hours. That's kind of like my sweet spot for playing any game. But you're right, because of the way the system worked and the scenario worked, it felt fairly light so it wasn't at all onerous to to be tracking six people because we weren't using miniatures or battle grids or initiative counts or any of those other things that take a little bit of admin or a bit of wrangling. And um, and we played for a couple of hours and I suppose one of my first observations was we chewed through loads of content and I can't help but compare and contrast. And, and I'll say this now, if if we'd run that adventure, that scenario under most of the other systems I possess I think it would have taken maybe twice as long and possibly longer than that in other games too um, and that, that's a function of it being a bit lightweight I'm sure but six players is normally a recipe for doubling the handling time at the table and it didn't seem that way No I agree I mean there's still a little bit of when there's that many people you kind of wait for your turn to speak again so you do feel a little bit kind of like you're waiting around sometimes um, but I think that's probably just a function of the fact that we're used to playing now with smaller groups of players as a whole. So it, it probably feels a bit a bit like that. Um, but comparing it to the last game of 13th Age I played, which felt like a long time, like I was um, waiting ages for my turn, then I rolled a dice, then I missed, and then that was it. 
I think um, this game felt a little bit more like there was more happening and people's turns rather quicker, certainly mechanically. Or uh, the other thing was is that we kind of made stuff up a little bit and did interesting things because you've not got a lot of numbers to go on your character sheet. You can't look down your list of skills or anything like that or a massive equipment list. So you look at the little bits you have got and think, what can I do and how can I use it? And I think that was probably what helped things keep tripping along quite nicely. I think you'll need more stuff. You need to find things, don't you, on adventures or... There needs to be other things to do because otherwise, you, I think that'll get tired pretty quickly. You need to, it sort of reinforced the message of the game that you're supposed to be going out exploring and finding things and, and looking for oddities and arcana. Because if you don't encounter them and get some new ones to play with, I think you could get quite stayed with the game because there's not a lot else to it. Um, so, backing up a little bit, we did generate characters at the start as well, live with people. Um, and, I, and I had a look back at the recording that we made of the, of the night and the whole process through six gamers took 12 minutes to generate characters. Uh, and that's, that's impressive, actually. Um, and maybe it might have even taken longer if we'd all been sat around the same table because <laughs> we'd have been yeah. poking at things and spinning dice and all the rest of it. But we got six characters generated in 12 minutes, so we were underway at minute 13, which I don't consider to be bad at all. But I suppose that one of the reasons for that is it's genuinely easy to do characters. And if you listen to our last cast, we went through that process ourselves, didn't we? And mm. it's not hard. Um, but also, I think the guys got straight into their characters as well. It had no more than a name, three stats, a hit point total, and a list of gear, which is what, three, four items maybe? And that's it. But that's all you get. Um, but it's all reasonably evocative stuff, certainly in the equipment. And by the time we'd done people's names, and I'd done that kind of usual, tell us a little bit about yourself, people started throwing stuff into the mix straight away, which I'm always really glad to hear, and it's a bit of a credit to the players, because the system doesn't ask them to do that. Um, but, we, you know, we got some some cool bits out of the setting just by people talking. I remember you mentioned something like the Third Automaton War with your character, mm. which was really cool, because, you know, you know, it's not just the Automaton War, is it? It's the third one. So I started thinking, where do you get that from? And what happened to the first two? And yeah. <laughs> and that's great. And people riffed off that a little bit. So despite having character sheets you could fit on an index card, we got straight into the game. And I like that bit. And I thought everybody had an interesting character and they were all a bit different, even though they were all human and we've got no classes in the Into the Odd system. They all felt like actual people without having to go through hindrances, edges, advantages, disadvantages and you know, uh, huge spreadsheets of stuff. So for me, that was good. It was straight into the game. How did it feel as a player at that point for you, mate? Yeah, I think it was fine. I think um, some of the people we had playing were definitely used to the more indie method where you kind of uh, reincorporate what other people have said and uh, build on that or you know, hook into some ideas that would have been thrown into the pot and try and build it up. So that, that's good. Um, potentially if you've got a group of players who are used to just D&D and not doing much interaction or role playing or making up their own story they might struggle a little bit with that element or to put as much character in it to it whether that matters or not for your groups obviously individual taste but I think um, it might take a GM to kind of encourage some players to try and give a bit of input and come up with stuff and know that they've got permission to do that because the, the book doesn't tell you either way does it? It doesn't say make things up and it doesn't say there is something for you and this is the sort of world you live in really so it's a bit down to the people at the table what they do with it. Um, I thought what was interesting when I ran the game uh, a couple of weeks later was we just had three players for that one uh, as a bit of a mix-up. Uh, so everybody created a companion, which is just you know 
a dude or a dudette with uh, three stats, one hit point and a sword. And that's basically it. But kind of out of that, we had um, some interesting relationships with the companions as well. I mean, in my head, I expected it to all be kind of like loyal bodyguard and all the rest of it, which we have one of. But then there was kind of, you know, a a, a jilted lover sort of character and um, a little lamplight boy and things like that. And uh, although the characters are pretty disposable, I guess, in the system, straight away again, due to the nature of people we had around the table, probably, we had some good characters and interactions just between our player and his hireling or or hanger-on sort of thing, which I think was all just... It's maybe the sparsity of the system encourages you to add more yourself because you feel like you want more around it. Yeah, it could be. I think it turns out that I like games with companions, and I wasn't sure if I knew that before I played Into the Odd. You've often talked in the past about the beauty of Pendragon and the best thing in it being the squire. Mm. Um, and those sort of companion characters, which, which date right back to the dawn of the hobby, don't they, with hirelings and retainers and that kind of stuff, I think they kind of faded away from a lot of other games over the years. I can't remember playing a game with a, with a, a sidekick for donkey's years, but what a laugh. What an absolute laugh, and and also how handy, because that meant that there was kind of six characters in your game as well, even though only three people were playing. But they do, and I, I think we'll talk about this in a bit when we talk about the lethality of the system, they do function as like an extra suit of armour as well, or an extra <laughs> set of skills or something else. It's Having having a higher body count is probably helpful in that game. Yes. Yeah, you need that. I'll... I'll... <laughs> I mean, I try and steer away. Some somebody before has used the phrase of ablative NPCs, which, and if you if you make it too obvious that you're doing that, I find it a little bit. Um, it breaks my immersion a little bit, if you know what I mean. Especially if you build up some kind of dialogue, but you can certainly build a narrative around the relationship you've got. And um, I like, for example, that uh, Piers had a this young lad with him. He was kind of uh, beholden to Piers' character. He was, you know, would beat him if he was wrong and all the rest of it. But so over the course of things, it got to the point where. Uh, you kept sending him off on his own, and you know, as a GM, I started thinking like, well, this this kid's probably looking for a way out. So if there's any opportunities where he can do something to, you know, not not necessarily screw you over, but certainly just disappear or do something awkward, he's going to take him maybe. Uh, and then it's just a matter of using his will save to see whether he goes for it or not. And we'll, we'll probably talk about later on what actually happened ultimately, but. Um, uh, oh, I was just going to say, I like the companions, and, and in my game where we didn't have companions, just by luck of the dice, we had animals, which took on a kind of a similar flavour. So, and there was no animals at all in your game. So, you know, two games, random rolls, ended up with completely different compositions. My game had a canary, a parrot, and a dog. Um, the dog was telepathic as well, which seems to be normal. <laughs> that was good. And, and they were used in a similar kind of way. I really liked how people used their equipment to to interact with the, the scenario um, and, and in lieu of abilities, powers, skills, which is what you would perhaps normally get. Um, and I, I've always liked that. And that, that is very classic D&D where you can get by with a steel mirror and a piece of chalk and a 10-foot pole. And, and I kind of like creative use of stuff like that. But... The animals and the companions added added a real dimension to me that I, I think, yeah, added an extra dimension that I liked to both games. And I think, yeah, I think like you said, they're a little bit necessary because I sort of was aware going in when we played your session that that there's this. Uh, I'll try not to give spoilers for people who haven't read the adventure or anything, but basically a big rusty coral kind of Hulk thing that we had to go into. 
And straight away, I was thinking, I don't want to go anywhere. It's rubbish. <laughs> that sounds like a horrible, dangerous place. <laughs> but that's kind of the mission we had. So, you know, you, you've got to buy into going into the dungeon, so to speak. But So you're in this weird situation where you feel like you have to go in there, but you don't want to. And it felt a little bit like um, a movie called Cube, or The Cube from ages ago, where there's a bunch of strangers forced together, and they've kind of got to try and get their way through, and they've all got a different set of skills. And one of them's kind of like tied his shoes together and throwing them into each next room first to see if a trap goes off. And it felt a little bit like that, like we're kind of a bunch of ne'er-do-wells or whatever, or reprobates all being shoved together to kind of go and get the magic treasure or what might be in here. And none of us may come out as it happens, but we're sort of like, we're down on a look and this is what we think we've got to do to kind of make something of ourselves. Hmm. Yeah, that, that's that's a good analogy. I mean, I watched the cube years ago. I had a dreadful hangover on New Year's Day. I think that was a really bad move. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there's um there's an element of that in lots of like OSR games. Um, I suppose the standard saying that you'll see on the internet is that it's fantasy Vietnam. You got to poke everything, and something might jump out of a hole at you at any time, and save or die. And and it, there is an element of that, and and you either like that kind of game or you don't. But I I think. And I should say at this point that the game I ran is the one out of the Insead book. It's called The Iron Coral, um, for which I did no prep whatsoever apart from a quick skim and just uh, and read out off keyed locations five seconds before you guys walked in there. But it's definitely what I would call player versus environment. That was the feeling that I got from it. Um, that reminded me of all my old dungeons from back in the day and the dungeons I play these days as well, where it's uh, a bunch of people. Um, and for whatever reason, their enemy or their obstacle is the place that they're in rather than agendas of things that are in there or their relationships with other people or the, or even necessarily their ambitions and goals, which are all a bit more lofty than what you had in front of you. But it was definitely something to be treated with respect and poked at and explored and know when to cut your losses. And that, that feeling came up really early in the game, which was kind of cool five minutes into the game everyone realized they had a gunpowder weapon and blasted the first thing that had popped up out of the out of the dungeon at them and i think everybody felt a bit more capable after that <laughs> yeah yeah quite well it's weirdly conversing when, when i run my session you kind of got past the first oddity or weirdness uh, and found uh, an opponent you could have easily avoided but still like yeah. the players felt com- the compulsion to go and poke it with a stick to see what happened almost Yeah, and even yeah. with a companion uh, losing a hand and someone else almost eviscerated you still you know it took a, f- a good few casualties before someone someone said like hang on a minute <laughs> we don't really need to do anything with this we can walk past it and there's that weird feeling that even though something's like super lethal and can be avoided because it's there uh, you feel like you want to poke it and find out what he does or get something out of it kind of thing. Yeah, you do. And that that's a part of exploration, isn't it? It's that um, it's finding out how it all works. Uh, and to do that, sometimes you have to poke it or in really old classic games, you might have to like answer a riddle or press the right brick or describe it in just the right way to the, to the DM. And it was always a DM rather than a GM. And I don't think Into the Odd fosters that necessarily, but there's definitely some kind of er behaviours that seasoned role players know that I think they fall back on. Um, and it was really interesting to see that come out. So we had very, very different scenarios, apart from the fact that mine was in what would you call a dungeon complex underground and yours was outside in the wilderness and was a bit more sci-fi and mine was a bit more weird fantasy. But people still 
had similar tactics, which I think came from, as we say, the character generation. You've got some equipment, and the only way you can really feel that you can interact with the game with the stuff you've got in your character sheet is to use that equipment. And that means shooting at something or poking it or sending your bird to talk to it or whatever it is you're doing or poking your companion because you don't you don't have stuff like sense motive as a skill. So it probably didn't come up that you would try and sense the motivation of something. Or, or yeah, does that is that how it felt for you as a player? Because that's how it felt for me that I didn't feel restricted, but I felt like I wanted to use what I had because it was simple to do. Yeah. Uh, I don't think there's so much a sense motive as just like a suspicion of everything. People, environment, bricks. Um, <laughs> anything you looked at or the GM described, you're immediately suspicious of it. While simultaneously wanted to do something with it as well. So I remember one bit where um, we kind of haven't got much in the way of equipment and somebody wanted to like clog up a pipe with something. So they cut out a huge chunk of flesh from a creature that we killed to then use as a plug for a pipe kind of thing. It's that kind of inventiveness I guess but it's just that like we're going to use whatever we've got to hand and do something with it and uh, I quite I quite like that as, a, as an idea I think it then relies on the GM constantly supplying things like that when the players are asking what's about or what can I do there's got to be features that they can then interact with and maybe use later or fall back on or do something with so you definitely can't run it with a kind of you know everything's all kind of grey or you're just in a a grassy field. There needs to be something there that they can go and interact with. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting point because uh, with my scenario, the formatting, um, which I, which I stick up on the website because I think it's really interesting. The formatting for the room descriptions is really terse, and it's laid out in such a way that it it kind of gives you something to go on, but it really isn't very much, especially if you're used to something like a Pathfinder adventure. Oh God, even a Savage World one pager. There's, mm. there's hardly anything there. There's a few lines that says what the room is, um, and that's in capital letters, so you can use that for the description because it's all immediately visible. And then the next line is all in italics, which is stuff the players will find out if they poke a bit, so stuff that isn't immediately obvious. And then there might be some stats, but maybe 20 words for a room, fewer than that perhaps, um, and maybe a couple of stats for the monsters, and they don't take up much either. So... You're absolutely right, mate, that people were doing all kinds of interesting things in the rooms. But also, I felt like a player as well when I was GMing it. Because I had to react to the things that they were doing. Lean back on stuff like saying yes and or yes but and trying not to say no to stuff. And uh, and I, I felt... I felt it felt quite liberating to do that rather than to be um, feverishly pouring through the published scenario or my own notes or my own expectations even if you've written your own scenario you've got them whether you like them or not and trying to think about what should happen and instead going with what could happen and, and making an immediate decision on that so I felt you know like I was being kept on my toes um, and that was fun um, and it I didn't try and guide my game at all, just let it unfold the way it wants to. It did start to go a bit... I, I think people use the term gonzo, and I, I know that you can you can define your words any way you want to. I don't think it went madly gonzo, but people did start doing stuff which in other games I might have thought, oh, that's not quite the tone I was going for. Because, well, I don't know. You, you, you were a player, guys. What did you think? Did you think it ever got into the realms of silly with stuff that people were doing? Uh, not particularly. I think there's some light-hearted moments, and um, 
Yes, it, I mean, it's hard. I think with, from the players, there was just a touch of uh, humour to it. I mean, I think you get a sort of sense of um, black British humour from the game almost, just like lurking in the shadows somewhere behind a curtain. Um, and certainly the stuff like the parrot and the canary and all that kind of thing. There's, there's just like moments of levity that broke up the otherwise, what would be probably a, hmm. a quite um, dark and uh, worrisome journey into this horrible dungeon kind of thing with all kinds of weird and wonderful creatures in trying to get you. So, um, yeah, there were moments of levity. I think there's um, there's one or two bits where I thought, like, I don't actually get what's happening now. That just seemed a little bit kind of incongruous, if you know what I mean, or I didn't... Mm. I, I I didn't become stuck, but I wasn't quite sure what to do next or what I was supposed to do, if you know what I mean, in inverted commas. Yeah, yeah I think that, that, that happens a lot in games. I, I get that, no matter what game we're playing. And I don't want to over-egg it. I, I listened back to the recording, and do you know what? People just laughed and laughed all the way through that game. Uh, and not because anyone was doing like Monty Python impressions and all the usual kind of 12-year-old stuff you get, but because, you know, the situations were creative and inventive and fun deadly and a bit desperate sometimes and you know some unpleasant stuff happened in there too but people were just chuckling away I think we had a really nice group of players in just the right frame of mind to give something a go um, and I think I think out of the group of six players one and a half maybe two of them had played into the odd before um, and you couldn't tell because it's not the sort of thing where you can do system mastery, is it? <laughs> uh, but everybody was just in the right mood for it, and I, I think all of our players had played together in other things before. But it, you could, you wouldn't have you wouldn't have wanted for more from a group of people who were all prepared to chat to each other and, and get stuck in. So I thought the atmosphere was great, and, and I really did feel like the seventh player instead of the person just delivering something in some manner to a bunch of strangers, which gaming can be like sometimes as a GM. Yeah. So how did you think? How did you find it as a player then, opposite? Because obviously my natural tendency is more towards darker stuff anyway, which one of the players probably quite rightly pointed out at one point. <laughs> went, "Ooh, that's a bit dark, guys." Which, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm Possibly. more used to your shizzle, so I didn't think that was particularly dark. I don't think you did either. <laughs> no, not really. But you know, it just it did make me pause and think about it. But yeah, go on. I'd, because they were, they were two radically different games, weren't they? But did these both still feel like Into the Odd, do you think? Yes, they did to me. Now, because I, I, I had no idea what you were going to run. I still don't know whether you did it yourself or you got it off the internet or what. Maybe you can tell me in a bit. But um, I mean, first things first, I really, really enjoyed doing my character. I had no thoughts about it whatsoever until I rolled the dice. And I rolled three dice, same as everybody does, came up with three stats. And characters just started popping into my head. I kind of made deliberate decisions to not go obvious, given that it's a game of Into the Odd. So I played a woman in her 60s, which is pretty much unlike most heroic characters. But I really enjoyed doing it. Um, and then when it came to her kit, she had a couple of bits and pieces and a companion. And, and immediately things started coming together. Um, so that was great. And it took five minutes. I've spent a lot longer than that thinking up a lot worse characters than that. <laughs> so really happy. Um, and then we're straight into your scenario, which is all outdoors. Um, and the very first thing we encounter is a bit Blake Seven. I'll put it that way. Mm, it's, it was yeah, kind yeah. of a bit science fictiony, which I thought, oh, cool. Um, and then the second thing we encounter is really science fictiony or post-apocalypse. But I got a vibe of like Newman era off of off of the whole scenario, and. It's a credit to you, mate, because that scenario that we played, I thought was really good, and I enjoyed it from start to end. And 
if we'd had played it in Numenera, I don't know if I'd have enjoyed it as much if I'd known we were playing Numenera. Yeah, having read that book, I think we got a, a light version of Numenera with all of the the oddity and I didn't know what time period it is or what planet we were on and none of that really mattered we didn't have to do any backstory or setting or anything we just experienced the environment and it was definitely a bit more sci-fi than fantasy and I didn't really know that Into the Odd did that particularly I knew it had gunpowder and stuff so in my mind it was like you know maybe Victorian Um, but because you had technology in it um, that was all kind of busted up and rotten, but technology nonetheless. It definitely gave it a very different feel and, and very, very different from my scenario. But I loved it. I thought it was a really cool environment. Um, and yeah, apart from seeing a great big horrible monstrosity early on and trying to poke it into action to kill us, <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was really well done. I enjoyed it immensely. Cheers, mate. Yeah, it, it was mostly stuff I've made up, but I did pick some bits out. There was like two or three Arcana items from the book that I'd used, um, and a couple of other bits and pieces that I chucked in there as well. One of the monsters was reskinned. Um, so yeah, it was. Um, I think the thing about it is, like you say, it's completely different. There's, there's not a lot. There's no like hack you have to do. Whatever you want to do with the game, because mm. it's so lightweight. It's all about the window dressing and what you say things look like and the, the experience that the players get. Um, but it didn't seem like anybody felt particularly like had, they'd had their expectations confounded or anything. Nobody was kind of like, what do you mean there's a big glass block with flashing lights and it doesn't make sense in this setting? Or, you know, mm. That sort of thing. I think because you're expecting things to be a bit weird and not know what to do with them and you have to go and invest in them, I think anything can go and it's it'll come out at the table what the sort of mood and theme is. Um, but yeah, I think your, your Newman era sort of description is not too far off, actually. If it's it's a bit more of a a British nineteen seventy sci fi version of Newman era, but yeah, that with the lights turned down. Yeah, um, well, I, I thought it was kind of cool. It, it's interesting because clearly I'm thinking about you know, will I play this game again? Will I run this game again? And in what context? I'm not sure what I'd put up on a flyer if I were going to run it at a con, and. I suppose I'm nervous that people would sit down and not get the game they were expecting because I don't know how I'd advertise it in the first place. But definitely the two games we had, everybody was prepared to to go for it and and go along on the ride. So maybe I'm worrying about nothing. But I think it would definitely be a unique experience and I would definitely roll up characters on the day as well. Yeah, if, it feels like something I'll put in my bag just in case I get to that point where I'm stuck with three or four other people and we can't find a game to play or something like that and you can bash this out in a couple of hours quite easily. I suppose one of the things that was a little bit worrisome, we, we did say we talk about the lethality of the system, and as you get more into it, you get more hit points, but if you've not listened to a previous podcast, essentially you start with 1d6 hit points, and things like a musket will do a d8, so there's a good chance that you, you lose all your hit points really quickly, and then it comes off your strength stat, which is 3d6, so it might be 10, for example. So pretty quickly, if you get in combat, and there's no to hit rolls, remember, you just roll damage, uh, you could quite easily be out of things, and that's pretty much what happened to one of the characters. You know, they took a good blow from this automaton. Uh, the hit points went, and most of the strength. So they spent the rest of the adventure being a little bit um, cautious, because they thought if something else hits me or I walk into a door too hard, then that's me done. So that's probably one of the things that I, f- I found a little bit. Perhaps we need to take take stock of that, or a new GM probably wants to be careful of in terms of how much damage they dish out or the capers people get into because early doors is pretty lethal but I could see how 
the um, like you get an extra d6 hit points if you level up in inverted commas. I can see as you go up that that would become less of an issue. So it feels to me like the game would change as you went on in terms of how cautious you were or how worried you were about encountering death. If you know what I mean, does that make sense? Mm. Yeah, it does, uh, and it's it's the feelings that every old school D and D GM has had to go through because the differences between level one and level 10 are absolutely enormous sometimes the differences between level one and level three are absolutely enormous um i'm i wasn't concerned by it particularly i've kind of i've gone back and had a look at the mechanics such as they are again and i'm kind of more and more in favor of them in that game because they kind of neatly circumvent a few different things so as you alluded to there there's no to hit roll you just roll damage now that depends on a, on language quite a lot because you have to kind of understand what hit points are in the game they're not meat points they're a mixture of luck morale skill etc and really you start getting hurt when you start losing strength so your hit points are a bit of a buffer like way back when in warhammer i think it was warhammer fantasy roleplay that used to be a bit of a buffer and then you start taking stat damage like in old school traveler and that's where it hurts so if you if you think about the damage roll as the to hit roll it sometimes feels a bit easier to deal with mentally and you can visualize it a bit more so if with a musket you roll d8 if you roll a one or a two and it takes away some hit points you can very easily narrate that as a miss because you're chipping away at morale or luck or whatever um, or you know you hit the the stone lintel above the character's head and they take a bit of rubble to the face um, but if you roll a d8 with the musket and they've got very few hit points left and it goes straight into the strength then you've shot them in the leg haven't you and so it's kind of like a to hit roll that always does something um, and I kind of like that because nothing never happens in, in, in when you take an action in combat yeah some stuff I mean, stuff, yeah. stuff might happen outside of combat where, where, where you whiff but you're not actually making active rolls there either so something is always happening and that's quite indie it feels a bit of an elegant way of dealing with it as well because I think more recent iterations of D&D have like some uh, certainly uh, 13th Age for example has um, a lot of abilities where you do damage even on a miss so that's kind of doing that but without the need for having extra special rules or anything like that it's just like basically what you roll on your dice will dictate whether it was that you're doing something on a miss in inverted commas or whether you're actually hitting them properly yeah, it's a pacing mechanic, but but you're right. Uh, 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 as a starter scenario, you could very well be out of the game without thinking twice about it, um, just purely, purely on the maths. And I think you're right that you need to be cognizant of that. But having said that, in a game where you can have companions and you're suggested you do so, and it would take nothing to level up your companion, because if your companion had to step up into like to be a proper player character you would just re-roll the 1d6 hit points and inherit the equipment from the dead person and you've got a character um, or you can be rolling up a character literally rolling up a character and missing out of 5 minutes of game and you're bound to be the tied up prisoner in the next room or whatever contrivance you want to use as a group and to be fair to the book I think it suggests that you know get people back into the game quickly there's really no reason why you couldn't um, or you can play a ghost or, or any of the other tips and tricks that we've used so I have no problem with lethality as long as it doesn't kick you out of the game for the next three hours because clearly that's no fun. Uh, and, and when that does happen, then death needs to be something that you've planned for. And I, I'm not so worried about it for Into the Odd, really. 
I think uh, probably more... Uh, worrisome thing more than the hit point mechanic or whatever because as we've said the mechanics are quite light is that just weird stuff can happen to you uh, like you turn into a pillar of blue smoke or something else basically on a like a will save or a deck save or something and you could have some like really weird effects happen to your character because anything goes just on the a roll of a d20 um, so it's kind of a double edged sword in that it, it could have really adverse effects that you're not totally on board with as a player but equally, it makes most of the rolls quite exciting when anything could happen and you're rolling to see what would happen. I don't know whether... I mean, for a one-off, it definitely feels good. For my player preferences, I don't know if I get fed up that the character sort of built up over a few sessions suddenly, whatever, turned into a pillar of crystal or something and they couldn't use them anymore based on one roll. I think that's probably where I might find it a little bit irksome. I don't know, until I played a, a campaign, but... I think you have to be on board with the idea that you could lose your character at any time and you'll have to pick up a new one, which will be as equally interesting as all the rest of it, but just be aware that you might not have that, the same character longevity throughout a whole campaign. You might be several different characters over the period of that time, maybe. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, and certainly one thing we didn't do, apart from just play the game that we normally do and improvise stuff up as we go, is we didn't deliberately try and hack it and, and even after one session, I think there's like you know some some little house rules I'd want to make that don't change the core game particularly, but I can immediately see how some attacks might damage your dexterity or your will rather than purely your strength, and and that that triples your hit points for want of a better term straight away, doesn't it? Uh, and that seems to be a really easy thing to do. Um, I think also if we played in the setting which is supposed to be Bastion, this great big city, um, those sort of adventures tend to to give you loads of contacts and relationships and factions and that kind of stuff which might make everybody want to be a bit more invested long term rather than just a series of expeditions so i think it depends where you want to go with it but it's it's definitely a really really strong start as i say i played lots of other one shots of games where i've walked away and thought yeah it was all right but into the odd still had me thinking the next day and definitely had me thinking back to some stuff that happened like the blue smoke thing which is um which isn't in the scenario at all. That just happened to be a bit of stuff that got dreamt up um, because one of the characters found a magic item earlier or a piece of arcana, which I made up and didn't know what it was going to do until it got applied later. <laughs> um, and it wasn't in the book. And then it got applied later and I just it came into me head and I had a character turn into blue smoke and then they could use their will to form themselves back into a shape that they wanted and and so on and and if the game had gone on that would have had a duration they would eventually have used their will to form themselves back into the person that they were clearly without their clothes because that's the funniest type of dungeon <laughs> but but that I, that seemed to be the sort of thing that could happen and because it could happen it should happen yeah that's the feeling I got off the game anyway but I don't know how you'd sell a campaign to someone is probably where I'm coming from I think you'd have to say sure everything's going to be a bit weird and we're going to find out amongst ourselves what this world's all about and what's happening and what you're going to do um, mm. Whereas something like Earthdome, for example, you could you know, give a whole spiel about Barsave and the, the Thrallic government and this invading army and this, that and the other. I mean, you could still do that for Into the Odd, but I think to play it, you've got to kind of discover through play what's going on. Yeah, which is, as I've gotten older, is something I appreciate more and more. Uh, and again, it is a clever little throwback to the original games where I played in groups when I was at school where people didn't bother naming their character till third level <laughs> it sounds awful to say that now but I can kind of see how that happened because 
you you get a feeling for stuff and stuff starts to come to life and then you take possession of it and the rest of it. I wouldn't be nearly so silly as to not give my character a name these days, but I do see where that comes from. And I absolutely loved, uh, as part of this experiment, not having to read a 300-page background book or even a 300-page setting book or rule book or just a giant book, for goodness sake. Yeah. We, we got some gaming going with... What was the overall prep? We did a podcast on it for an hour. I'd skimmed it before that, and we you probably did some note-taking, and we sat down to play. That ain't bad. Yeah. Yeah, my, my adventure was written on um, some post-it notes, basically. I just jotted some ideas down, and I had eight or ten ideas, and then that was it. Hmm. Um, so hmm. so that, that lack of campaign, which I agree, I I'm not sure that you could necessarily sell it as campaign maybe you don't have to there's other games for that isn't there and I wouldn't take the into the odd rules into my 5th edition campaign and I don't think you would replace your tight purse Harvey pirate savage game with the into the odd rules because it doesn't need to happen there's enough room for all these games did you ever find with anything that the players came up with there was something where you thought um, no that's not right or I mean I, I didn't particularly feel any anything that anybody said I, I was quite happy to incorporate I didn't think there was anything that would would be off the table almost I, I, well, I don't know is it, is it like is it just that because there's so little uh, framework that you feel that you can do anything how, how do you corral tone and that sort of thing when no one's got any boundaries for you oh that's that's another podcast uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, all, I, all I can say is how it felt for me which is I was willing to go with whatever people said um and, and we had a couple of you know a couple of decision points by the players sometimes in character generation sometimes during the expedition itself where I thought oh that's not really the tone I was going for but it's not up to me is it it's up to everybody that's one of the things you know um, and I didn't write the scenario so I couldn't really afford to be particularly precious about it but um, what I did notice is because you're not act you're not asking the players to make active skill roles for stuff that put a new dynamic on the conversation so it really did feel like a conversation all the time where it's my job as the host of the game to say yes as, as often as I could because saying no we well, only say no when it's impossible and there was loads of times where in any other game I'd have asked for a skill role absolutely loads and in some of the requests made by the characters like um, I'm going to sneak up behind so and so it's almost like they were asking for a skill role but there isn't one to be had and I did quite like not having to reach for my D20 quite so much. And we've done a whole podcast on dice rolling and how we like it. So I found it liberating. Um, but there were a couple of occasions where I thought, ah, uh, not quite sure how best to handle this decision point. And OSR stuff is often about making rulings, but there's so little uh, mechanically in the game as a skeleton. It's quite difficult to make a ruling on it at all apart from roll a d6 and six is good for the player and one is bad for the player but that seemed to be enough on the one or two times that we had to roll for it I, I, I thought it was okay and after 10 minutes or so I was rolling with it and then to play it worked just as just as fine as well yeah I think there's there's occasions where you're like walking through a minefield or whatever else and it's like oh god I hope nobody stands on this and it's like well okay let's let's all make a look roll then which I, I think according to the book the gem should make one but it just seemed appropriate to get everybody to roll a d6 and whoever got worst was the one that stood on the mind that kind of thing um, and at a decision point later on with a companion it was like does does your little lamplighter boy come to rescue you after everybody else has deserted you or not and even the player then saying well I kind of want to roll for it because you know 
he didn't have a clear either way it was going to be a good story point and he, he didn't care which way it went he just wanted something to happen so it seems good at that point to make a will say for your companion and see if he um, does the thing that's right for him or right for you that sort of that sort of thing so it, it made the, the worlds we did make a bit more meaningful when we made them hmm. I think yeah yeah, which is something that that you know we we spent the whole of the last episode talking about, and I definitely want dice rolls to be more meaningful. And um, because of the way they're rolled in into the odd, they're rolled as saves, so you're rolling to avoid stuff. So you can't help but feel meaningful about that because you don't know what the consequence of your failure is going to be, but you know it's going to be bad enough to have been asked to roll in the first place. Yeah. So, <laughs> so that puts a certain frisson into it. But you know, this it's just kind of. I didn't feel the need for like group roles, opposed roles, skill challenges, extended challenges, or any of the other million things that you kind of internalized after you've been playing games for years and you've read every type of rule book and you're just looking at the differences between the two, aren't mm. you? I didn't miss them. I just didn't miss them. Now, it's only a two-hour game, and um, maybe I'd miss them after time, but it was a real palate cleanser for, from that perspective. And it doesn't put me off playing 13th Age or 5th Edition or, or any of the other games that have got a fair old chunk of crunch to them. It doesn't put me off that at all. But it was a really brisk change of pace for me. And I, and I learned a lot about about listening to what people have said and trying to think up the next thing that is that would make sense and be cool and be adventurous. And I know that sounds like you should do that for every game. But sometimes I go to the dice in other games or or I go to the mechanics and that pushes you down a certain avenue but when you go to the dice with Into the Odd it's going to branch at that point and I quite like not knowing what was going to happen afterwards until the dice hit the table yeah yeah. I, I think it it'd make it feels like it would make a good sort of framework for other games where you kind of want the stuff to be going out of the table and not in the rule book if you know what I mean so uh, I know some people and certainly we've mentioned before putting Cthulhu and everything can be too much but if you wanted to run a Cthulhu game or a Cthulhu-esque game it's already got a little bit of a Victorian theme to it this sort of um, with the artwork and everything it'd be dead easy to create a new little equipment list for your starting characters you know and someone has whatever uh, a dusty old tome and someone else has uh, I don't know some old scroll in a language they can't read or some, some other things like that and are kind of easily translate into uh, mythos type stuff and the, certainly the monsters can be quite scary if you bump the stats up a little bit. So you could easily run something like a Cthulhu game uh, and it'd be more about what the players do and what they ask for and when they try and poke stuff with sticks, what happens, uh, and really fit in with that. And with the added lethality of the system and the, it just comes down to will saves or something a lot of the time, I think all that would work perfectly well for it. Oh, absolutely. Especially if you do damage to will, yes. uh, which is sanity blasting stuff, yeah. uh, the equipment list, as you say, and it, it completely circumvents 200 pages of gumshoe because when players ask to see if they can find clues, they do because there's no spot hidden rolls or anything else like that at all. But they may well have to save uh, against uh, against strength when the uh, when the, the cultists push the barn down over them or whatever it is. So I could totally see a very, very lightweight Cthulhu game based on that. Um, but that's that's all the player-facing stuff. So, But you know, one of the things I was going to ask you, though, Gaz, as, as GM who wrote his own stuff, was did you, did you write your stuff based on Into the Odd, or did you write it in the way that you would have written 
any other adventure and just apply the into the odd mechanics to it because I saw the GM side of the the screen which is random tables um, locations keyed locations exploration don't know where anyone's going to go but when they get there there'll be something to interact with so you know for, from the GM side of into the odd did you make any allowances for that or see it happen to you well, I looked at what was in the in the rule book. Aside from the uh, the Iron Coral adventure, there's also a little wilderness one, which is a bit of a hex crawl, which has just got a bunch of like twenty or thirty hexes, and there's there's something in each one, and it might even just be like you know a broken vase or a dead body or something. But there's there's something to do, and I think in your old school way, you just kind of like let the players bumble about from hex to hex as they try and get somewhere and encounter the thing that's in it. But that didn't feel particularly. Um, good to me it felt like i could come up with a bunch of stuff and then you know 70 percent of it wouldn't even get looked at uh, and it would all be about the whim of who which which hex people picked basically um and it's stuff i used to do back when i was younger you know i had little um pieces of paper like taped over different locations and stuff and would reveal them as things happen and that sort of thing and that it's all good fun in its own way but for this it felt more like i should have stuff's happening all the time i didn't want people going into a the next location it turns out that really there's just a dead body but not a lot to do with it or uh, risk failure that I didn't know what would happen so as a gym what I prepared was what some people call bangs or things but encounters and things that will happen and stuff to push story along and things that the players must interact with or should interact with uh, and having a series of those and then let the players do what they will with them uh, with an idea in my head of how I think it's going to go but then having to adapt as we go I felt a lot better way of approaching some kind of wilderness exploration exploration adventure um so you can still leave a lot of the stuff open to interpretation and, and come up with it as people make suggestions about what it might be or what they try and do with it but i i found it easier for me as a gm to come up with like what would be a cool or interesting thing even if i didn't know what that cool or interesting thing would do necessarily but i wanted some stuff to have to present to you guys when you started asking questions or looking for things okay so so that's really interesting because you know that that that's the way you run you'll prepare for most of your games I think um which and I, I come to that from your suggestion of you know would you use this for Cthulhu you see my immediate thought was I'd want to if I were going to do it the into the odd ways I'd want lots of tables I'd want lots of rolls on stuff it would be quite sandboxy but improvisational at the same time really sparse and there may not be a plot because I don't think OSR games and certainly into the odd have a plot whereas Cthulhu seems to be designed to have one um, or a mystery at least to be solved and that, that turns into the plot but but that wouldn't stop you would it because that, that would be the way that you would design a Call of Cthulhu adventure anyway and then just bolt on the into the odd mechanics such as they are yeah I, th- I think it's quite easy to do it stuff I've done with um, Hot War or whatever else you just kind of have an idea of what's going on so one of the Cthulhu Hot War games I had had basically a cult at the seaside who were Dagon worshippers um, and they kind of had their plan of what they were going to do and they were going to sacrifice someone and they were going to summon this big beastie and X, Y and Z was going to happen if the players did nothing but the, you go in with the assumption that the players are going to do stuff and they're going to start poking things around and upsetting people and asking the wrong questions and threatening someone and all the rest of it and then the the environment will react to it so it feels very much the same way and I think Into the Odd can be fine for that If you, I'm very thinky, I like to think about what might happen and what could come up and, and put plenty of stuff in there so that people will react to it but I know a lot of the old school people just prefer to have a table to roll on and they go okay you go into this pub I don't know what it's like I'll roll some dice now to find out uh, and they're happy with that which is a perfectly valid way of doing it but for me I prefer to have 
my own thoughts in advance about what might happen rather than get my excitement at the table by rolling on a table yeah it's a it's definitely it's a preference there's no right or wrong is there but um the the preference in even in the scenario i ran and it, it didn't come up um there's a little wandering monster table at the beginning and uh sometimes those are the most interesting bits of scenarios because you have an environment and it's got some set pieces in it but it doesn't come to life until you start having those wandering monsters which will kind of disrupt plans and disrupt your gm plans as well because you weren't expecting that that to happen then or in that place and it could add to an existing encounter or it could make an empty area interesting and those wonder that wandering monster encounter table for that particular scenario had had really interesting things in it like a, a couple of looters and that's all it says you know yeah. it gives you a number and looters and but then you you have to decide what are they looting are they on their way out are they on their way in how are they going to interact with the party that kind of mm. stuff and when you read it you do do the thinking bit so it's basically it's a post-it note with an idea on it isn't it yeah. like you would have done it just says looters question mark <laughs> but but having that kind of environment and then a bunch of random bangs because all of those wandering monsters were bangs to be sprinkled in and even you as the gm don't know when it's going to happen it's either when things start to slow down you make a roll or people start to camp you make a roll or you just use your intuition don't you mm. i quite liked assembling the jigsaw at the table at the time because the mechanics were so light i don't think i could have done that in a game that was more mechanically invested or or even with a, with a campaign that was more story invested i don't think i could have done that but i would be pro- more than happy to try and run a cthulhu game if i'd got my notes set up in such a way that i just had some jigsaw pieces which i knew would come together in interesting and funky ways at the table yeah, I think um, one of the things for me is that it's, it's all very well running a, a pre-written adventure and having those tables and things to roll and all the rest of it. Um, and some are going to be more interesting than others. So probably for me, what I want to do is read through that kind of stuff and pick out the interesting ones and have them ready rather than necessarily... And by ready, I just mean like, I think that one's better than the other one or whatever. Uh, rather than rolling at the time, I think I just have a slight worry that I'll be rolling on tables or whatever and think that's not interested and want to roll again. Uh, definitely in in such a lightweight game, I won't want to get to the situation where I was like flapping around a bit or having to make choices, and the players are waiting for something to go on, you know, because they're expecting something to happen fairly immediately. I think, and it's that um, comes back to that sort of very similitude that you actually have an adventure and you know what's occurring, even if we all know around the table that's probably not fully the truth. You kind of want to play as if there's like definite things happening. In one of the um, the videos I, I saw a bit of a look at on YouTube recently about, I think it's Matthew Colville, someone like that. Um, but he, he talks about D&D and he gives good advice for new gems, definitely. Uh, one of the bits that may be curious in his game is um, he kind of planned this scenario out. So he got a very clear idea of what was going to happen and he did make some stuff up on the fly. And one I found odd was he kind of went into this, um, or the players went into a room uh, where a battle had been. And one of the players asked, you know, is, is that guy we talked to earlier here? Uh, and he said, oh, no, because in, in his head, the gym was thinking, well, that, that guy's off scouting now. And it's that sort of decision point where, I, for me personally, I'd be more saying, like, uh, yeah, even if I thought initially would be scouting, he says, well, the players asked for him, and this seems like an opportune moment for him to turn up. So let's have him now, that kind of thing. So um, as long as the players don't uh, see behind the curtain, I, I prefer to play a bit more like you're playing it like it's all definite and it was all planned this way. Um, and if they don't see the cogs moving and it's the same when I'm playing I, I can know someone's making stuff up but 
if I don't see the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain, I'm quite happy to look at the big face and the flashbangs and the music playing. Yeah, I, I am too. And when I ran the Iron Coral, there was there was a big old chunk of it which was which was in my scenario notes, but just as much, if not more than half of it, was kind of invented out of whole cloth as a reaction to what the players were saying. Um, I didn't have it written down in advance; it was you know improvised. But there was enough there to to fire my imagination. I didn't really feel like I was on the back foot very often. I felt I was on my toes, but not on the back foot to stretch that analogy even further. But um, it was relatively straightforward for me to to come up with cool stuff and everyone seemed to react to it quite well and I don't think that the players could see the joins because I wasn't reading box text in some locations and not in others or or when someone says what's that person's name I didn't go uh give me a minute uh yeah okay because you know stuff like that that breaks the curtain doesn't it uh breaks the fourth wall so yeah I, I felt I felt well in control of the imagination pieces of it so for me those kind of terse descriptions and playthings that I was given by another author worked really well uh, but you know I've always run published scenarios more than my own um, and it's just a preference as you say uh, and, I, and I, I didn't know whether your adventure that you ran was a published one or not and uh, I don't know if that's a compliment or a criticism it's just, <laughs> it's just what it is isn't it but yeah you know they both felt like games you could just believe in and take in good faith so I, th- I think you know the the whole stuff about what what you should prepare, how you should deliver it to the table is probably another subject that we could and should return to. Mm. So, in in the interest of time and um, and uh, and not boring everybody to death about into the odd, I, I I would say I had a couple of really really good games out of that, and I would play it again in a heartbeat. I don't know if I'd want to pitch it as a twelve week campaign to my current group of players. Yep, yeah, same here. I had a really good time with both games. Uh, your game was excellent, um, and you know all the players were excellent as well. We probably need to reiterate that. I think it all comes down to the people at the table, doesn't it? As we say many times, but this, this if anything, proved it. And it didn't matter whether we had three or six, um, we got plenty of stuff done either way, and neither felt particularly stretched or compressed either for it. So good times, and uh, the the point of the experiment was for us to try something new, which we have done. Uh, and we've read it and done characters and and treated it in the way that we would treat most games that that we purchase I suppose with with the with the difference being we've actually taken it out into the wild and both had a go at it and played in each other's games and I enjoyed that experience whether whether into the odd was part of that or not I think that's something we should come back to yeah definitely um, I think it def- de- definitely helped that it was quite a slim game and that one of us could guide the other one through it and uh, we could take on a bunch of newbies as well but I don't think we need to play another six sessions of Into the Odd to find out whether we like it or not. And um, yeah, let's let's start thinking about what we should do. So this is where we put out the standard call to all of our loyal listeners. Is, uh, give us a shout if you want us to try something out. We might already have it. Uh, and there's every chance we do, but it's probably something we've not played in a while I looked at. So uh, yeah, yeah, offer stuff up because uh, my head's spinning with, with new things I want to try as well. And I think it was a format that I really enjoyed. Yep, same here. I think we've already got one guy lined up. One of our generous patrons already said he'll run a, a short mini campaign for us to give us something else to have a go at. Um, but we're always on the lookout for more games. Games are good. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. Okay, thanks, guys. Um, by the time you've heard this, you'll know whether I've been able to put any clips of our actual play into this podcast or not, mm-hmm. <laughs> or whether we release them just as a separate entity. And um, the, the best way to find out the answers to any of those questions is to become a patron. 
so <laughs> throw a dollar at us once a month we give you free stuff and we and our eternal gratitude so head on over to smartparty slash patreon.com um or is it the other way around patreon.com slash smartparty oh you can find it you know the internet works and uh there, there's a good place to uh to look for some extra stuff and i'll no doubt dump some of the actual play stuff into there because um it was really good and it made me laugh listening back to it so i want to give out props to and let's do this from the top of my head elena and mick and graham and johnny and yourself gaz and who have i missed or is that it oh, that was all the place you said they're in a different order than i've got in my head so now it's like when someone says your yeah. phone number but in the wrong order um sure oh that's... god i'm else peers i've missed one peers sorry peers oh of all the people that miss out peers you were my favorite <laughs> <laughs> maybe Stephen was there as well. I can't remember <laughs> let's keep saying names just to make sure we're covering everybody <laughs> Pierce was my favourite because he got excited when he rolled a crit <laughs> he's a Tredosaurus really cool totally. well thanks very much for listening guys and if any of you are at UK Games Expo I'll be there wandering around so come over and say hi buy us a pint talk about the podcast or whatever you want to and if not you can always email us get in touch on the forums pass us a message through Patreon we love hearing from you all and for me bye for now and for me see you later <laughs> From the southernmost passageway, the one that's kind of filled up with a sea foam, uh, comes fluttering and screeching at top speed a bedraggled looking wet canary. Hooray! <laughs> can, I, uh, can I write it sort of surreptitiously on my character sheet? You can write it in great big bold letters if you like. Oh, it's like a parrot shaped hole in my head, lads. <laughs> that's about right. Do you have any sayings about canaries in your village? After a couple of bars, you realise it's doing a classic sea shanty. And, and I start stroking the fiddle. You can't have my treasure. My treasure is for me alone. That's what I told the other bad men. Gently easing them to a deep sleep. <laughs> then we can steal the treasure. Oh, now I feel guilty. It's not got pockets, mate. It's not a big bowl cut. It's just grease yourself up with some tog slick and get your eye on it. <laughs> <laughs> and then save is a D20 under the stars. Yeah, exactly right, yeah. What, what, you put him on your bum? He's got a, a oh. gleeful grin on his face and you're snapping your bolt cutters open and shut. All right, oh, that's, that's unlikely, hang on. Yeah, you have to pass a strength save to avoid critical damage. Oh. If you don't understand it, we should probably shoot it. I think some sort of fruitcake. What's that, something? The merman fell down the well? You might be all right. <laughs> <laughs>